If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. Uh, If you also did not get communion, don't be shy, just raise your hand, and the gentleman walking through the aisles will make sure that you get one, and along with that, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 1. We started last week a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we studied the genealogy coming to find or perhaps be reminded that genealogies are not unimportant. You don't just skip over them even though it's a bunch of names that maybe you can't pronounce. Uh, They mean something and they tell us something from the Scriptures. And in this particular passage, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, we find the virgin birth. And in God's providential timing, we get to do that here on Christmas Eve. A lot of people, especially theologians, don't call it the virgin birth They call it the virgin conception because it's actually not the birth story so much as it's the conception story of Christ here. And Matthew focuses on the virgin conception because, again, he's trying to convey a bigger story, just like the genealogy, the deeper significance of the arrival of Christ the King. This was no ordinary lineage. He is no ordinary baby, and this is and was no ordinary birth story. If you will, stand one final time for the reading of God's Word. We do this each week out of reverence for the Word of God, believing as we read these verses that God is literally speaking to us through His Word. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That is the word of God to us today. You may be seated, and as you sit, let's go to the Lord one more time together in prayer. Father, this Christmas Eve, we must pause to say thank you for your son. We praise you for Christ. We adore him. We love him. Even though our lives don't always convey that, we sin, we fail, we forget, and yet you are so faithful. And we praise you and thank you that Christmas time reminds us of what matters most. And so today as we move from worship through singing to worship through preaching and and receiving your word and then to communion and singing again. In all of it, please turn our eyes to Christ. In the room today, there is no doubt people that are going through trials. Christmas doesn't necessarily represent the season of plenty or the season of abundance or joy or traditions and family, but rather it represents loss this time. Perhaps uh, counting 
another Christmas without their loved one, their child, their husband, their wife. Perhaps it's been a challenging year for them financially or in other ways. May they be reminded that Emmanuel, God with us during Christmas, is not just a a rah-rah term meant to fill us with thoughts of of more stuff and, and our families and the tree and all of it, although those are good gifts from you. But God with us means your comfort is near in the times of loss and pain and through tears. Today, strengthen our faith through the virgin birth, and may we relish in Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most important questions that you and I could ever ask is, why is the virgin birth essential? And what I mean by essential is to the Christian faith, that someone could not call themselves a Christian, a true Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, if they did not believe in the virgin birth? Why is it an essential Christian belief? A number of years ago, a man named Rob Bell, who became famous back in the day for deconstructing, he was one of the original deconstructors who began to, uh, quote-unquote, fall away from the faith or lean away from Christian doctrine. He said, it wouldn't really be a big deal if we all found out one day that Jesus had an earthly father named, you know, Larry. The virgin birth is, is not essential. His point was, you know, who cares? Whether he was born of a virgin, whether he was divine, you know, he could have just come through a, a guy named Larry and a mom named Mary. It wouldn't really matter. The virgin birth is not essential. He couldn't be more wrong. And those today who stand against the virgin birth or seek to disprove the virgin birth are wrong as well. Uh, There's a famous uh, segment in history. If you remember the Larry King live show, Larry King once said if, if he could have dinner or meet with one person, it would be Jesus Christ. And if he could ask him one question, he would simply ask him, was the virgin birth true? Because that would alter the course of his belief and what he thought about Christianity. The virgin birth is so essential that it dictates true faith versus false faith. Yes, it matters. The virgin birth proves that the Bible is true. The virgin birth proves that Jesus Christ was perfect, holy, pure, human, and also divine. The only person ever born this way. He was not born into sin like you and I, but born perfect and lived a perfect life. Life. He was not conceived by a man and a woman in natural ways, meaning just like us with the stain of sin from Adam. He was born in a supernatural way in that he came through a virgin but was conceived by not Joseph but the Holy Spirit himself. And Satan hates this truth. He hates this doctrine in this passage because it represents God with us, the perfection of Christ, saving imperfect sinners like you and I. Satan hates this doctrine because it represents his defeat and Christ's victory. Satan hates this doctrine because it represents the fulfillment of God's promise to you. See, Satan hates that sort of reality because 
if he can get you to doubt the promises of God, then he has undermined your faith to such a degree that you begin to say, well, can I really trust him? Does he really love me? Could he really save me? Does it really matter? Anyways, the Bible rushes in and through Matthew's words, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, with a resounding yes, you can trust him. And yes, it matters. Today, we'll understand the arrival of King Jesus. Let's look at verse 18 together. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew begins the book with a genealogy to show you the significance of Christ's ancestry. And now shifts to the supernatural nature of Christ's arrival. There's a few keys here that I want you to understand if you're following along or taking notes. Number one, Mary is betrothed to Joseph when all of this happens. What does betrothed mean? You might think, you know, that's just the idea of being engaged. Or, you know, dad and mom said, hey, you can have our daughter. Joseph is a great guy. No. Betrothal in those days, in those customs, is more than just an engagement. It's actually a legal agreement. It would be in writing. It was signed by witnesses, and it was a year-long process. So the idea being, if I have a daughter and she's betrothed to your son, we sign off. Everybody signs off. And if you have a daughter, you bring a dowry to the table, and it's a big deal. Everybody knows about it. It's the now but not yet promise and covenant that you will marry my daughter. If you broke off a betrothal, it was legal as well. You would give a writ of divorce, and they would know, everybody would know. It was signed also by witnesses. So she's betrothed to him. In their custom, it's important for you to get into the mind of the original audience, in their custom, much different than ours, women were typically betrothed at 12. In Judaism, they didn't view it like we do, where our 12-year-old little girls and boys are still, you know, playing video games and, you know, you still clean the room for them. In those days, to be bar mitzvahed as a, as a boy, bar mitzvah means son of law. Your 12-year-old son was moving into manhood. He knew the law. Your 12-year-old daughter was mirroring and mimicking mom as a young woman. And so they would be betrothed at that age and then married by 13 and then babies coming around 14 to 16 and the men would be a little bit older. You'd have a 17-year-old or 18-year-old boy marrying your 13-year-old or, and I don't even want to call him a boy, a man, marrying your, your 13, 14-year-old girl because he could provide and work. That was the arrangement. That's how we know. You know, you'd think, Mary, how old was she? What was this like? She was young. They were all young. And they all knew the law. They were following God. They're working hard. It's all approved. It's nothing sinister, and the process is closely guarded. Mary and Joseph also, number two, had not been intimate. So they're following the law. Matthew says, before they came together. It's a phrase referring to their consummation in the marriage. They had remained pure, but she's pregnant. So how did that happen? Number three, you see, the Holy Spirit put the child inside of her. Very important truth here. This isn't sinful. It's not premarital in a sense that it's scandalous. It's a divine act in which God, the Holy Spirit, places Christ inside of her womb. This is a divine conception. In verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So we have a problem. If they're betrothed and now she's pregnant, and they hadn't consummated. He didn't do anything. It's complicated now for Joseph. 
he loves her, but his expected wife-to-be is supposed to be pure and ready for marriage, and now she's pregnant. So in the betrothal process, we now have a huge issue. In those days, according to the law, if a woman committed adultery, it was a, a public event, if you will, meaning everybody knew and then the deal was off. And in betrothal, this wasn't like, well, we'll just kind of break it off. No, it had to be legal. In their law, back in Deuteronomy, there's a great deal about this. She could be stoned. Certainly, she would live as a social outcast from this point onward. Her betrothed husband, and uh, he was now victimized by her actions. He would in all likelihood keep the dowry as punishment. He could take out all his pain and betrayal on her by getting his pound of flesh. You could make it really public, and everybody would know. Mary is an adulteress. She broke it off with Joseph, or he broke it off with her because she broke his heart. She broke her covenant. And yet Joseph, what does he do? You see it there. He plans to just divorce her privately. He doesn't want to disgrace her. Keener commentates this. Joseph could have profited by divorcing. He could have taken her to court, impounded her dowry, perhaps recouped the bride price if he had paid one at betrothal by simply providing her a certificate of divorce in front of two or three witnesses privately. He would forfeit the economic benefits of the process, all to minimize her public dishonor. Joseph was still going to divorce Mary, as wounded as he was, but he would do everything in his power to minimize her shame. We begin to see a little bit about Joseph's character. Jesus' father is a man of honor. Matthew says righteous. Why? Righteous meaning he's a man of the law. He'll follow the law and divorce her, but he's a man of mercy. He'll do it quietly. He's an example to us of the mercy and grace we ought to have on those who sin against us. Christmas, a reminder of that, God's kindness and mercy towards us, his forgiveness of us, his coming to save sinners, then forgiving us, all the while should ignite our own tender hearts and forgiveness towards others. I think a lot of times at Christmas we get hard-hearted, we kind of roll our eyes, family, oh, here we go, I have to deal with them, I have to see them. You see an example in the father, earthly father, legally the adoptive father of Christ, mercy and grace. No need to shame them. There'd still be boundaries, but he would not overlook what was right and just. There was just one problem, and it was that things weren't what they seemed. Verse 20, when he had considered this, considered a verb means to reflect. It means he's, he's kind of just noodling on it, like, like men do. We're really thinking about this decision whether or not to go through it, and what the process is going to be like. Behold, which is a Greek word that's more alarming than just, hey, behold, you know, nice and calm. This is meant to alarm and arrest the attention of the reader. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What is he saying? Saying, don't be afraid of the stigma that will come. You're going to honor her. You're going to love her. You're going to care for her. A lot of people are going to talk about you. They might make fun of you. Oh, the Holy Spirit put the baby in her, did he? They're going to look at Joseph in a negative light. God is saying, don't be worried about any of it. 
It's God's doing. The baby is special. You trust him. In verse 21, she will bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the claim of all claims. And Joseph knows exactly what this means. When he's told, you will name him Jesus. The Greek name, Jesus, the Hebrew name, Joshua or Yeshua, literally translates Yahweh saves. This is a statement of hope. It's an anchor of hope in the midst of a very hopeless time. It's the deliverer of Israel who's come. He's the greater than Moses. What has he come to do? He's come to save them from their poverty? No. He's come to save them from uh, uh, traffic jams? No. He's come to save them from their sins. Something so serious, something so weighty, something so devastating. And it's what has long been declared about Jesus. It's the truth about Jesus. And it's really the truth that comes to bear on your heart and on mine during the Christmas season. And really at all times is what do you view him as? Is he your savior from some mere earthly discomfort? Or is he your savior from something that matters in eternity? Acts 4 verse 2. The declaration, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone is the Savior. He is alone the one who saves. And Matthew chooses these words on purpose. The Jews had this idea about the Messiah, that the Messiah would come and overthrow Rome. They had their own ideas about salvation. They superimposed them on God. They didn't like their enemies, so they wanted Jesus to come and destroy their enemies and make them great. We do the same thing today. We have our own ideas of what it means that Jesus would save. We're concerned about sickness, and, and we can be, and we can pray for those things, but Jesus ultimately did not come only or just that you would be saved from a sickness or saved from stress or, or saved from your dead-end job or saved from market fluctuations or saved from a bad day. He came that you and I would be saved from our sin because the number one reason we need saving is because of our sin. You could have great investments. You could have a stress-free life. You could have everything going well for you. You could be extremely healthy and have it all together. But if you don't have salvation from sin, you don't have what you need the most. And God in His grace, this is why He's so loving and so merciful. He didn't give you what you wanted. He gave you what you needed salvation from sin. He didn't give Israel their, their, their marauding crusader who would just destroy Rome and give them all this status and what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, and so he sent us a Savior. This is why the gospel matters. This is why Christ came. And based on this text, there's three essentials, three more essentials here. Not just the virgin birth, but these are wrapped up in the virgin birth that Everyone must believe if they will be saved. Number one, Jesus was divine. 
He came from God. He was not merely a man. He was divine. He wasn't just a good person. He wasn't just a guru. He was divine. And the ultimate proof of his divinity, by the way, is his ability to live a perfect life. You and I, not going to happen. You might think, well, I, I did good yesterday. Not as sinful. Good for you. Not me. Not most of us. Perhaps more likely not any of us. Jesus perfect. From start to finish, he never had a bad day. Even on the cross, you'd consider that a very bad day. That was a very good day for Christ as he won victory and proved his divinity and then rose from the dead three days later. He was divine. He did not need salvation as a sinner. He, he was salvation for the sinner. He was divine. Number two, Jesus was human. We see this in the virgin birth. Why? Because he came through a woman. John 1.14 says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I, I appreciate Storms here in his commentary on this. The virgin birth alone ensures both full deity and full humanity of Jesus. If God had created Jesus, a complete human being in heaven, and sent him to earth apart from any human parent, it's difficult to see how he could truly be a man. If God has sent his Son into the world through both a human father and a human mother, it is difficult to see how he could truly be God. In his sovereignty, God orchestrated the perfect delivery, if you will, of his son. He was divine. He was human. And therefore, number three, you must conclude, I must conclude that Jesus saves. Why? Because it was only this perfect life, only this perfect Savior who would fulfill his calling for why he was sent with perfect obedience. And that has the perfect power to save imperfect humans from the destruction of sin and death. Only if you believe in Jesus can you be saved. He is the one who Yahweh sent. Yahweh did not send a litany of options. And if you believe in Buddha, and if you believe in yourself, and if you believe in Oprah's whatever secret she has now, and if you believe in a little Scientology, or if you do some yoga poses and twist yourself up into a pretzel and begin to meditate and find yourself, if you try a little bit of this and that, you know, I just want to try it all. I was talking to a friend recently, a friend that I dialogue with and, and in different circles, and they said, we just, we just kind of want to try a little of everything because we think God is in all of it. That kind of Belief breaks my heart. Why? Because the Bible doesn't teach, you shall call his name Jesus and he will be one of the options to get to heaven. You will call his name Jesus and, and this will be one of the items on the menu. No, he will save his people from their sins. Even the meaning of his name, Yahweh, saves. This is the option. And guess what? God planned all of this. None of it's by accident or by mistake. Look at verses 22 and 23. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated God with us. This is my favorite Christmas word. It's technically not a name for God, so we wouldn't call it another name of Christ. It's a descriptive adjectival term, Emmanuel. You know what it means? It means God with us. When you're alone, when you're feeling depressed, 
when you're feeling anxious, when you are feeling like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, when you feel hopeless, when you feel worried or doubtful, Emmanuel is God with us. He's with you. He's near you. He's for you. He loves you. What a beautiful word God chose to use. This prophecy is around 700 years before Christ. And so in the virgin birth, we also see the proof of Scripture and its reliability, that when God makes a promise, He will always keep it. Yes, in between, there were many moments of doubt and fear for the people of Israel, and yet Yahweh saves. He keeps His promises. It also highlights uh, what's happening at that time. And again, remember I told you that when we go through the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to need to take these you know, two-minute rabbit trails to help you understand what's going on in the background because Matthew, writing to a primarily Jewish audience, is always assuming his readers know what's happening. It's like if I used an inside joke that was mostly American and anyone from a different country in the room goes, huh? And it goes over their head. I experienced that a lot because I grew up in Canada, and I came over to America. I was born in Florida, so dual citizen, but I couldn't really claim that much America. And when I came over here and I would talk, people would hear me say out or about or house, and they would know. Or I would say something. One time I said, pardon? No one paid any attention. I said, pardon? Pardon me? Like, what are you talking? Oh, in America we say, huh? I didn't hear you. It's cultural. Well, Matthew is, is laying out these certain phrases or statements or quotes. And many of us go, okay, whatever. The prophet, whatever. No, 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 no. This is what's happening back then. You remember our genealogy? You probably don't. It's been a long week. I know. Let me get you up to speed again. All the kings in Matthew's lineage that he lays out. One is named Ahaz. He's ruling in Judah. During the time of Isaiah 7, when this prophecy is told and when Matthew's quoting it from, Ahaz is the wicked son of Uzziah. If you remember in Isaiah 6, if you've ever read that passage, it talks about the holiness of God in, in the days of King Uzziah. Ahaz is an idol worshiper, bad guy. His lifestyle and his leadership are threatening to bring the whole kingdom down. And the royal line will end if he blows it. His enemies are seeking to overthrow him. And instead of repenting and turning to God, he cuts a dirty deal with the Assyrians. Like a dirty politician. He goes, let me, let me cut a deal with them. And so he does. Well, Isaiah comes to the unfaithful and faithless Ahaz and says, God has a plan to deliver his people. So Ahaz listened to the prophet, of course. No, he didn't. He ignores him completely. And out of that moment of total rebellion by Ahaz, Isaiah prophesies these words. And basically, it's saying, you kings, you keep blowing it. You keep messing it up. But before anybody worries about the royal line ending or one of these earthly kings ruining it for everyone, don't you worry. And he prophesies about a coming ruler, a coming king, the Messiah himself. He will come and nothing will stop 
the plan of God. There's one coming who will fix it all. He will be with his people, Emmanuel. He'll be everything that the failing and faithless leaders of this world will never be. That's the significance of this prophecy. It would uplift the reader to see Every leader has failed, Jesus won't. Every ruler has failed, Jesus won't. Every king fails, Jesus won't. God always keeps his promises. And maybe today, especially around this time, the the weight of doubt, the weight of worry, the weight of what has been begins to infiltrate your thinking. And you are doubting God more than ever before, or you just get depressed and you get in your own mind and you begin to think, really, where is he? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Is he even involved in this? God always keeps his promises. He is Emmanuel, God with us all the time. And this truth would echo in their ears. In verse 24 and 25, Joseph awoke from his sleep. So this is a a revelatory dream in his sleep. And he does as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. We see here Joseph obeys the angel. He marries Mary. He respects her purity. He doesn't consummate until after Christ is born And he calls his name Jesus. The arrival of the king through the virgin means something significant for you and I. Even though it's to an original audience, how do we apply these? Let me give you four ways and then we'll take communion out of the last one. Number one, realize God is totally in control. He's totally in control. Just like he orchestrated the arrival of his son... He stopped Joseph from divorcing Mary. He kept his covenant. He preserved his royal line despite the wicked kings in Israel and in Judah. Like Ahaz, God is in total control of your life. Every aspect, every detail, nothing by accident, nothing in which he is saying, oops, they got me. I better come up with something and play catch-up. God does not play catch-up. He's always out front. We're always behind. And I don't want you to miss that this Christmas, that he is very much involved in every aspect of your life. You only see impartial. I only see impartial. God sees the whole picture. Number two, we ought to relish in the Trinity out of relish in the Trinity. Maybe you're newer to Christianity and, and you're, you're kind of sorting through all of this, but perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time and you haven't really thought about the power of the Trinity or the doctrine of the Trinity and why it matters. This is one of those moments where you have the Father sending the Son, the Holy Spirit conceiving the Son, and the Son arriving on earth. This is Trinitarian doctrine. It's also part of what Matthew does in the beginning and the end of his gospel. It's such a a beautiful picture. I think the Bible nerds in the room always like this kind of thing. You have in the beginning of his gospel the uh, calling of the Son down through the Trinity, And then you have in the end of his gospel the commission of the Son that involves the Trinity, that you will go and teach the nations, that you'll baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this beautiful doctrine, we see that our God is one in three persons, all active, all equal in essence, very much involved in the coming of Christ. 
Therefore, number three, repent of your sin and believe. If you are here and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, the virgin birth proclaims to you that all other saviors fall short. No other path will lead to heaven. If you are lost through the gospel, you will be found. God is not fable. The Bible is not just some loosely put together moral guidebook. Christ is not a myth. He came, he lived, he died, he rose, and he's the Savior, and he did it all perfectly. And I pray you today will come to find what so many in the room around you have, that Jesus Christ alone saves, he transforms, he redeems, and one day he will return for you and I, and your faith will be made sight. That is a hope this world can never steal, and I want that for you if you don't have it. And if you're a believer today, number four, remember what Christ has done. For those who are saved, we get this. It's spiritual amnesia. We forget. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. It's what's been happening to humanity throughout the ages, which is why in the Bible people are called back to their first love, the first love mentality that you remember and you return and you go back to what Christ has done. I think Christmas, for all the arguments about when Christ came, well, it wasn't this time of year, and it was that time of year. Well, Mary, how do you know she was wearing blue in the nativity scene? Like, all that stuff. Look, he, okay, I'm never going to change my tune, okay, about Santa being a lie. If you want to have him be a fairy tale like your Cinderella, that's fine. He's a fairy tale. He's not real. Outside of that, lighten up. Maybe it was the spring. Maybe it was a few days ago. We can ask him when you get there. You know what the reality is? He came. One guy's pumped. (laughs) This time of year is when we slow down. If it was in July, we'd slow down and we'd sweat in Arizona. I don't care when it is so much as it's about what it is. It's all about Christ. We slow down and we remember. If it wasn't for him, where would you be? If it wasn't for his grace, what would today look like for you? If it wasn't for his mercy, what would tomorrow hold? If it wasn't for his love, would you ever love like you do? If it wasn't for his forgiveness, how would you ever be able to forgive? Messiah has come. He's the king. So what does he get? Our worship our adoration. He gets all of us. And Christmas, especially the virgin birth, represents a time in which we go back and remember all that he has done. And so that beyond just Christmas, that song we sing, oh, come let us adore him, becomes the anthem of your life every single day. Oh, come let us adore him.